You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The decision to leave the Conservatives, as Heidi and Sarah have identified, is not all about Brexit. It's about facing the reality of British politics as it stands today and is set to continue unless we do our duty as elected representatives. And then there were 11. Is something stirring in the long-abandoned centre ground of British politics? My guests Carol Walker and Robin Lustig will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Theresa May's millionth visit to Brussels to ask for concessions that she isn't going to get, the United States' new stand against the criminalisation of homosexuality around the world, and would you choose a two-and-a-half-day train ride over a three-hour flight? One word leader would. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the former BBC political correspondent Carol Walker and the journalist and broadcaster, former presenter of The World Tonight on Radio 4, Robin Lustig. And welcome both. Uh, We will start in Brussels currently and once again playing bemused host to UK Prime Minister Theresa May, who has apparently discovered another part of the word no that she doesn't understand. With 37 days remaining until Brexit and with 37 fewer ideas than that about what Brexit is actually going to mean, presently confirmed by Britain's alleged government, May has gone to relitigate the Irish backstop in the belief that if the EU will budge on this, then Britain's freshly complicated parliament, and more on that shortly, will budge on her withdrawal deal. Um, Carol, what's, what's she even doing at this point, really? Well, Andrew, it does feel a bit like Groundhog Day, doesn't it? Here goes Theresa May again. She's trying to seek legally binding changes to this backstop, which many in her party fear would trap Britain far too closely into all the rules and regulations of the European Union. Um, But the signals coming from the EU side are, frankly, increasingly blunt. Jean-Claude Juncker, ahead of this meeting, said that he didn't expect it to lead to anything. Um, Nothing much had changed. He was waiting for some new proposals. And the EU Commission have been making it very clear that they are not prepared to reopen the withdrawal agreement itself. They're not prepared to consider a unilateral exit from the backstop arrangements. And they're not prepared to put a time limit on it because the whole idea is that these are arrangements that would prevent a border in Northern Ireland if uh, you get to the stage where there's no trade agreement and you've got different trading arrangements on different sides of the border. If there is a time limit to it, then it's not a guarantee. It doesn't prevent a hard border. But essentially, these two have been going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. If anything, Theresa May is in an even weaker position than she was before because she's been defeated once again in Parliament. And it's very, very hard to see at this stage what she is going to bring back to Parliament next week when 
when she's promised MPs yet another vote. Uh, Robin, as as a journalist, you will be very familiar, I'm sure, with the, the concept of displacement activity. Is 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 is, is Theresa May basically performing the equivalent of I mean, this? Is, this is a journalist with a deadline descending, standing in a very clean kitchen, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is exactly that. The other journalistic metaphor that comes to mind is um, what a reporter says when they've run out of ideas, but the news editor is breathing down their <laughs> neck, and they say, "Well, let me make a couple more calls." <laughs> and uh, they pick up the phone and they sort of look desultorily as if they're making a couple more calls, whereas they're desperately trying to find a way of explaining that they haven't got what the news editor wants them to get. And, and, and oh, very you... often a bewildered dry cleaner on the other yeah, end. That too. <laughs> um, she's going through the motions. She's trying to persuade her own party that she's doing everything possible to get them what they want. She knows, and they know, and Brussels knows, that she can't and she won't. But as the clock ge- keeps on ticking, I guess her last hope is that when they stare the cliff edge in the face. Can you stare a cliff edge in the face? I don't know. But anyway, when they get to the cliff edge, they'll look over it and think, oh no, we won't. We'll buy her deal. We'll go with it. We'll hold our breath and it'll be the best we can get. But she has to persuade them that she's done everything she can. Carol, is there a sense in which this does make a certain amount uh, of political sense for the Prime Minister in that maybe, as Robin's suggesting, the brinkmanship will work and she will bounce Parliament into agreeing her deal, in which case she wins, or she can say, well, I tried, it wasn't my fault. I think she simply has no alternative. Theresa May, for months now, has been living from one crisis to the next. Uh, Her next step is dictated by the most recent defeat in Parliament. Uh, She went through the motions of trying to reach out to the Labour Party much too late in the day, um, making it very clear that she wasn't prepared to accept some of their basic demands, such as remaining in a customs union. She then went back to trying to reach out to the hardliners within her party. And over the last week or so, she has had uh, her eternal attorney general, um, Jeffrey Cox, uh, looking at trying to find some kind of legal mechanism that can get around this backstop problem. I think she is simply hoping uh, that perhaps at the very last minute, the EU side might blink a bit, might offer her a bit more. Um, or that uh, her own side, enough on her own side, will realise that how dangerous it is that they are heading towards a no-deal Brexit and so they will vote for her deal. She does have another little escape clause, if you like, which is that uh, a, a Labour MP, Yvette Cooper, along with uh, uh, one of her own MPs, uh, is looking at putting down once again an amendment would say right we take uh, we backbench MPs take control of the parliamentary process we're going to put through a bill that means if you get any closer to a no deal brexit you've got to seek either a delay or some other mechanism to avoid a no deal brexit and it may be that Theresa May simply knows that she can't turn if she turns one side way she'll lose one half of her party if she turns the other she'll she'll lose the other so she just relies on these backbenchers to avert what she really doesn't want which is a no deal brexit okay well let's move along slightly 
slightly because however unhappy EU leaders may be to see Theresa May again, she might nevertheless find Brussels relatively relaxing. In the last 24 hours and change, British politics has become freshly complicated. Yesterday, eight Labour MPs resigned from the party, citing, among other concerns, a culture of bullying and anti-Semitism and the general haplessness of party leader Jeremy Corbyn. Today, that eight were joined by three Conservative MPs, Anna Subri, Sarah Wollaston and Heidi Allen, largely motivated by objections to the government's handling of Brexit and or of Brexit itself. This cohort will sit as the independent group. It seems reasonable to assume that more will join them. Um, Robin, is it actually weird that this hasn't happened before now? Yes, I suppose in some senses it is, although MPs are notoriously loath to split away from the party that they belong to. For many of them, it's been a life's work. Many of them joined their chosen party when they were in their teens. They've devoted endless hours, days, weeks and years to working for the party's benefit. It's not easy for them to it's, leave. It's a, it's a tribe, isn't it's it? A, absolutely. It's a tribe. It's a family. Some people would call it a cult almost. But whatever it is, it's not easy to leave it. So they're reluctant to leave. They always hope that somehow something will happen which will make it possible for them to stay. Um, It's significant that these three Tories and eight Labour MPs have left. However, does it make a difference immediately to the parliamentary arithmetic? I wonder, because they haven't been voting the party line, if there is such a thing, on Brexit anyway. So the difference that it makes to the likely outcome of the Brexit chaos, I, I, I do wonder. I think there's a potential that over the medium term it will change something quite significant in British politics, which have been dominated for so long by the two big parties, and those two big parties are now visibly beginning to fracture. The party leaders have no authority over their MPs, the party whips, who in theory instruct the MPs how to vote and off they go like little lambs to vote the way they're told, that's not happening either. So it could be, if they are joined by more, that something genuinely significant is beginning to happen. Uh, Carol, it is only a beginning, and it's not even a political party yet, uh, we, we should stress, and we're not terribly clear yet on precisely what their policy positions on a lot of fronts are, but they clearly represent something that a reasonable number of British voters feel has been missing. Early polling, and it's obviously very early polling, already has them in double digits uh, in, in terms of a, a, a preferred party. Is that something, I mean, that's not insignificant because it means it, it, it hasn't fallen at the first hurdle. It, it, it exists, it lives. But is there potentially something here? Well, look, I think what has been clear for a long time is that there is a crying out for some new political force. There are large numbers of voters out there who feel politically homeless, who feel that they haven't got uh, the sort of party that really represents how they feel. They do, many traditional Labour voters do feel that Jeremy Corbyn has taken the party too far to the left, particularly when it comes to international policy, security and so forth. And there are many Conservative Uh, voters who feel that the party that they loved when David Cameron was doing nice kind of cuddly things on the environment and uh, going out with huskies to show how much he cared about uh, pollution of our oceans and so on, that you've now got a party that is obsessed with this route through Brexit. So there there is a longing for some 
kind of new representation, some new kind of body. But this is a very new movement. Um, it's only been in existence for a couple of days. I think what was significant is that after eight Labour MPs resigned to sit as independents, you then had three Conservatives today seeing how saying that they were going to do the same because they felt that their party had been captured by the hard right. How they are going to actually coalesce into a party which they're not at the moment, I think that is going to be much, much more difficult. And already, for example, some of the leading Conservatives, one of them, Anna Soubry, said that on the economy, she was very supportive of the former Chancellor, George Osborne. I'm sure many of those Labour members who've left uh, their party would have very, very different views on the economy. So I think the next steps are going to be very, very difficult indeed, but this certainly is fertile ground, fertile territory. And look, if we look across the channel, I mean, Emmanuel Macron built a movement virtually from scratch. Indeed. So, uh, Robin, there has been an amount of criticism, and it's not unreasonable in a sense, that uh, all of these 11 MPs so far uh, campaigned for and won their seats as members of a political party fighting on that political particular political particular political you know what i'm trying to say fighting on that particular manifesto um is there an argument that they should if they're honest uh chuck their seats in and run again as independents in a by-election absolutely there is an argument but they won't listen to it because it's very very unusual for defective mps to do that because unless they've got an organization in place and a huge personal following they will lose their seat and that will not be their objective at all there is one other thing that needs to to be said, Andrew, I don't know how many of your listeners have a very long memory, but in the early 1980s, something rather similar happened here. A group of uh, breakaway Labour MPs formed something called the Social Democratic Party. Briefly, they were hugely popular. They actually won 20-something percent in a general election, but because of the daft political system we've got here, first past the post, they won only a handful of seats, and uh, the kind of stresses that uh, Carol was just referring to soon manifest themselves. They went into alliance with the Liberal Party. That didn't last long. They fractured, they disappeared, and they died. Now, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself. And yes, the Emmanuel Macron example in France is interesting, but the British political culture is very different from the French political culture. And uh, I have my doubts whether something similar to the Macron phenomenon could ever happen here. I think Robin makes some very valid points, but it is worth bearing in mind that that SDP breakaway, uh, it did have a huge effect on the Labour Party, which then moved significantly onto the centre ground. And indeed, many of those founder members, uh, they became, after they joined up with the uh, Liberal Party, they became the Liberal Democrats. Well, the Liberal Democrats were part of the coalition government between 2010 and 2015. So the SDP didn't break the mould of British politics in the way that they might have hoped, but they did have a significant effect on the future course of politics in this country. Just to follow that up, Carol, it's 11 so far. Nobody seems to think they will be the last. How important is who goes over the wall next? Are there personalities in the House of Commons 
who, if they, by, by force of their gravitas or personality, if they packed in either the Conservative <laughs> or the Labour whip and indeed membership and joined this, might actually make... I mean, which is not to suggest that these 11 people are not serious figures because many of them have considerable records behind them. But I'm guessing if a, if a Jess Phillips or a Keir Starmer uh, was to walk, would that... Would that change the dynamic? Well, I think that if they were to get some really significant figures joining the movement, that would undoubtedly give them the momentum that they really need. Uh, At the moment, the names that we're hearing about of those who are likely to follow suit, and I think there will be more, are not particularly any of those big hitters. But of course, if you have got significant figures, they may well not want to try to uh, signal any moves uh, very far in advance. I think there could be a critical moment next week when there will be more votes in the Houses of Parliament. And a number of quite significant ministers have indicated that unless they get a sign from Theresa May that she's going to take steps to avoid a no-deal Brexit, they may well resign as ministers in order to vote for these mechanisms that I was talking about a short time ago to prevent that happening. And I think were you to see a wave of ministers resigning and then perhaps further down the line, a few of them joining this movement, then it could start to be a really significant force. I think that's exactly right. I I think if senior Tories began to jump ship, that would be seriously significant. The Labour side have been in such a mess for such a long time anyway, and they have relatively few uh, major figures who are instantly recognisable to the general public. The Tory side, however, as Carol says, if some ministers were to jump ship, that then could change things quite rapidly. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Robin Lustig and Carol Walker. Coming up next, Donald Trump and credit where it might be due. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Carol Walker and Robin Lustig. On form, it is reasonable to suppose that if the administration of US President Donald Trump does a good thing, it is either for bad reasons or entirely by accident. Nevertheless, the fact is that Trump's White House is to launch a global campaign to end the criminalisation of homosexuality, which remains the law in at least 70 countries, in some of them punishable by death. Uh, the initiative will be led by the United States Ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell. Um, Robin, do do we extend credit where it is due to Donald Trump? You might. I won't. Um, I don't believe it. I don't think there will be any such global campaign. This 
looks to me as if it is designed to be a pressure point against Iran, which, as we know, is one of Mr. Trump's bugbears. I would be prepared to eat the hat that I'm not wearing uh, <laughs> if he were to start campaigning against anti-homosexual laws in Saudi Arabia, in the United Arab Emirates, in uh, various other countries which he regards as his friends, not to mention Russia, of course, where his best buddy, Mr. Putin, isn't exactly the most pro gay leader on the face of the earth. I think this is a cynical move. I think it is designed only to try to persuade particularly some European governments to join the Trump crusade, if that's the right word, which probably isn't, against Iran. And I don't think it'll work. Just to follow that up, Robin, even if there is, let's call it a, a measure of cynicism leavened with hypocrisy underpinning this, is it nevertheless entirely wrong uh, to try and beat up on Iran on human rights grounds vis-a-vis -vis its treatment of gay people, which is appalling? No, it's, of course it's not wrong. But it, I think in order to escape the charge of cynicism and hypocrisy, it has to be matched by equal campaigns against against all other countries where there are equally barbaric measures in place against gay people, uh, indeed also against China, where there are appalling human rights abuses against any kind of political dissidents. I mean, the idea that President Trump is turning himself into some kind of global defender of human rights, I find impossible to give credence to. It, it, it would be a turn up. Uh, I, 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 I will grant you that. Uh, uh, Carol, is, is, is it just about possible that the European countries to whom uh, Ambassador Grinnell is going to make this pitch may have seen through this? And if they hadn't previously and they've just been listening to Robin, they have now. Well, look, if, I think if they're canny, they could um, welcome this great conversion to the cause of uh, equal rights for gay communities across the world from President Trump. Um, and furthermore, they could say, well, um, yeah, and you seem to have indicated that you're prepared to work with all these international organisations like the United Nations and the European Union uh, in order to try and achieve this. Um, this is a, an American president who likes to show a clean pair of heels to anything that looks like a large multi-nation uh, organisation. Um, so I think it would be, uh, it would show quite a significant um, change of heart were he to do so. But it does seem as though, uh, as Robin has mentioned, um, this is more about trying to put pressure on Iran. And I think the acid test will be whether this announcement of this campaign actually announce, amounts to anything. Does he actually do any of this work with these organisations? Does he raise the issue with Saudi Arabia, uh, with whom the United States has such a very close relationship, despite uh, the recent uh, killing of Jamal Khashoggi? Um, so it, I think that anyone who cares about the rights of uh, gay people across the globe would think, well, fantastic if the United States is going to get on board and do something about it. But uh, perhaps we should judge the actions that follow up from these words. Robin, is there, uh, as Carol suggests, there something to be said then for the European countries to whom this pitch is being made to perform such an act of ethical jujitsu against the White House and say, brilliant, fine, bring it on. Let's go. What can we do? If they accompany it 
by similar measures against other countries. I mean, it's not beyond the wit of European diplomats to say to Mr. Trump, very interested in what you had to say about your uh, your new campaign. Uh, may we suggest a form of words which includes by name Russia, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and any other countries which have equally appalling records and then see how Mr. Trump reacts to that. And it's interesting that quite a lot of the uh, gay rights organisations in the United States are already complaining that, um, hang on a second, this came out of the blue. Uh, We weren't consulted about this. Oh, and by the way, none of us have been invited to get involved in all of this, even though many of those organisations do have connections with uh, civil rights uh, movements in other parts of the world. And there I was trying to be encouraging. Ah, well, uh, we will move on finally uh, tonight uh, to the fact that it is about a week until Donald Trump is due to meet North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Hanoi for another summit, which will likely serve mostly as a global caption competition. Though Kim flew to their previous meeting in Singapore, he is famously unfond of aircraft and will therefore reportedly travel to Vietnam by train, a journey likely to take two and a half days, and that will only get him to Vietnam's border from where he'll need to be driven the last 170 kilometres so you've got to feel for those bodyguards who run alongside his car um, Robin, is, is it wrong of me to be actually quite jealous of this? I'm not, I'm not necessarily that keen on spending two and a half days with Kim Jong-un but the idea of a, a two and a half day trundle from uh, Pyongyang up through China to the border with Vietnam that sounds fabulous. I agree with you entirely I mean, you know, words that you never expected to hear spoken on Midori House Andrew Muller and Robin Lustig agree with Kim Jong-un <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, absolutely right. If ever you have a choice between travelling by plane or travelling by train, train every time. Uh, Even if it's two and a half days versus about, I'm guessing, three hours. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did a train ride from Bangkok to Singapore, which I think was due to take three or four days, in fact, took rather longer because as we approached Singapore, we discovered that the track had been washed away by monsoon floods and uh, the train just ground to a standstill and nobody had much idea what to do. So that that was exciting. I mean, if that sort of thing were to happen on a plane, you wouldn't live to tell the tale. Um, <laughs> all we did was we got off the train, we trekked into a nearby village, we asked them if anybody had a car and asked, paid them a little bit of money to drive us r- remaining 100 and something kilometres into Singapore. Yeah, I mean, trains always win over planes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, I, I hate to sound to, as I'm agreeing with everybody else as I love a long train journey. Two and a half days. Uh, oh, I've never quite done that long. And I think I might start getting a bit uh, twitchy after after that. And I wouldn't mind it so much if I could get off at a few stations and stretch my legs and have a wander around. But yeah, long train journeys are a, a particularly enjoyable way of getting from A to B. And, and these days, especially, if you can avoid the hell that, it, that is airports today, uh, absolutely fantastic. Interesting that he is making this journey to Vietnam. And anyone who goes to Vietnam um, may like to know that the uh, the reunification express, I'm not quite sure why they call it an express, because I reckon I could jog at about the same time as it goes. <laughs> but it, it, it goes from, uh, from Hanoi in the north to Ho Chi Minh City in the south. And it is an overnight experience or a day-long experience and it is a wonderful wonderful journey and a wonderful way to see the country. That sounds, that sounds brilliant um, readers of Monocle's annual travel supplement The Escapist will know that I spent five days of last summer travelling by rail from London to Istanbul trying to recreate the Orient Express on, on currently publicly available railways which I recommend heartily, it was excellent
excellent fun. The longest I've ever done on a train in one stretch was four days uh, from Moscow to Irkutsk, uh, one leg of the Trans-Mongolian Railway. And it was, it was genuinely great fun. I didn't get bored once. You know, big bag full of books, decent bottle of whiskey. It was, it was, it was great. I, I can think of few more relaxing ways to spend a couple of days than to sit in a train, staring out of the window, watching the countryside go by, stopping off at stations, leaning out of the window, watching everybody on the station platforms. A lovely trip that I did, which didn't take very long. It was only three hours, but it was a circular railway around Yangon or Rangoon in Myanmar, Burma. And it's simply a, a round trip. But you pass <laughs> It's literally through, a round trip. <laughs> literally a round trip. You end up where you started. But it's the most wonderful way of seeing the outskirts of a city which you wouldn't otherwise see. That is a fantastically an exercise. I, I, I didn't know about that. Uh, one. It literally, I it's it a bit like the circle line, I guess, but you don't get much of a view on you that. You don't. It, 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 I could also say that anyone who is planning to go to, well, to the southern part of Italy, but even to the northern part of Italy, you can still take a, an overnight sleeper from Paris. If you're going from London, you do have to change trains in Paris, but you can then take a sleeper from Paris and, and you wake up as you hit the south coast of France and it takes you right along the south coast of France, down and round the corner into Italy. And it is a spectacularly wonderful way of getting yeah okay you could do it in a fraction of the time on a plane um, but it is in itself a wonderful journey and of course the great thing about these sorts of journeys is the people that you meet on board because inevitably you strike well, that, up that, that, that could be a two way street <laughs> I'm not quite sure whether um, the North Korean leader is going to be having many chats with he, his fellow passengers he, he, he as is, he heads across China I not. somehow doubt there's going to be a huge amount of interaction with the uh, the general public what was the pity he is not going to have to endure as I did on a different monocle assignment about catching the sleeper train from Milan to Palermo which is that ridiculous one which they disassemble at the end of Italy roll onto a boat in separate segments and then spend half a day reassembling at the other end it would make so much more sense just to have one train than the ferry than but another many years ago when I, when but anyway yeah, but yeah. no but the, the guy in the next compartment was literally listening to opera most of the way like out, out loud I used to live in Spain many many years ago and if you took the train from Paris to Madrid in those days because Spain and France had different rail track gauges. The train was lifted off its bogies. Russia at the into Mongolia is like that is as it, well, I think. Lift yes. the carriages or up Mongolia on great China, big one of winches, those two. Take out one set of bogies. Yeah bring in the next. That's great. One, one o'clock in the morning it usually happened. Great fun. Well, on that unusual note of agreement with Chairman Kim, uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Carol Walker and Robin Lustig, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bates. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800. London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Mullet. Thanks for listening. 